Go ahead and grab a seat. So we kick off our theme, this idea of cornerstone for the year. It got me thinking back to a house I lived in as a kid. And I remember that house, it started small, but there in the kitchen, if you looked up, you could see a little crack in the ceiling. And the, the, little by little, that crack kind of kept growing. And it kind of went across the ceiling and then started going kind of up the ceiling as it kind of vaulted a little bit. It was never gaping or anything like that, but it was definitely there and it was definitely growing. And my dad wasn't, you know, a real handyman or fix-it Felix kind of guy. Uh, so he found a handyman in our church, brought him over and said, hey, can you look at this crack that is growing in our ceiling? And the guy looked at it and looked at some other things and came back to my dad and said, well, yeah, we could do something about the crack in the ceiling. You know, we could uh, try to seal that up. But the real problem is there's a crack in the foundation of the house. Uh, and that's what's creating the crack in the ceiling. So sure, we can try to cover up the, the crack there. But unless you fix the problem in the foundation, that crack is going to keep coming back. And it's just going to get worse. Uh, now, it's easy for people maybe to come to a ministry like this, you know, a ministry that you sign up on the page that's, you know, compasschurch.com slash marriage, uh, because they think, eh, I'm, I'm seeing some cracks. And maybe you might think, eh, you know, there's some things we could be doing better in parenting, or there's some things, you know, in our marriage that I wish uh, we could improve a little bit. Uh, but lots of the times, what we really see is that, yeah, yeah, those cracks are there, but the real thing that needs to be fixed is the foundation. And that's why even as we showed earlier, the foundation of everything that we talk about at Thrive really is our faith. Because I would hope everybody in this room tonight wants a godly marriage. And I'm pretty confident that all the parents in the room want to be good and godly parents. I don't think that's the problem. The question is, how do we get there? And how do we do that? And that's going to bring us all the way back to the most foundational thing, that a godly life and a godly family starts with a focused and unshakable commitment to Jesus Christ. And to help us understand that tonight, I'd like you to take your Bibles with me and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we just want to look at three verses there. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes a lot of letters to churches, and some of them it's really positive. Paul misses them. They miss Paul. Everybody loves each other, not the Corinthians. Lots of problems going on in the church at Corinth, and they're not really being very nice to Paul. These false teachers have come in and are starting to teach them different things, and specifically, they're bad-mouthing Paul. They're saying, Paul, you're not a very good guy. So Paul's kind of having to defend himself from them, and he says this, Second uh, Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 4, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Uh, Paul has a concern for them. He calls it a divine jealousy. And even the picture there is kind of like a father that's betrothed his daughter 
to someone. And I think it's helpful for us even as a marriage ministry to start the year by looking at really the marriage that's most important, which isn't even totally between you and your spouse. It's your relationship with Christ. As Paul said, I betrothed you as a pure virgin to him. But he has this concern that as the serpent deceived Eve, their thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's kind of the goal that he's trying to push them towards, but the goal that he's afraid that they are going to miss. This sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And the idea behind those words is that of simplicity. That it's not complicated, that they know what they want. Like in those videos we were watching, that the grandma at the reception that got the microphone, she's like, I want chicken and potatoes. That's it. She, she, she knew what she wanted, and that's, that's what, she, what she asked for. It was simple. That's the idea, this sincere and pure, this simple devotion to Christ. That your life, what you really want, isn't that complicated. What you want more than anything is Jesus, to follow him and to please him. Do you want a healthy spiritual life? Do you want to build a healthy marriage and a healthy family? Then number one tonight, you need to build on a Christ-focused life. Build on a Christ-focused life. It came this last weekend in the middle of our series on parenting. Pastor Mike uh, talked about how you want to have a godly launch pad. And the first point was build a God-centered home. He made a good, uh, quick illustration there that a wheel can't have two hubs. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the wheel's got to revolve around one point. And, and in your life, that, that focus, that everything else revolves around, has to be your relationship with Christ. If you want to have a God-centered home, like Pastor Mike talked about this weekend, you must be a God-centered, a Christ-centered person. Uh, that's the kind of person everybody here needs to be. And really, this gets to the heart of the Christian life and even to the basic question of why. Why should we be Christians? Why, why should we do this thing? Why should we be coming to church? And there's a few core biblical reasons, I think, but at the center of all of those is a person. And that person is Jesus. We live the Christian life because we love him. Uh, th think about this. Uh, many of you, when you started working, wherever you work, right now, wherever your current job is, you probably signed a contract. And you said, all right, I'm going to agree to work here, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what you're going to pay me, and this is what the benefits are. Uh, you signed that contract, and now you're working for a paycheck. And you might say, oh no, Pastor Ben, I love my job. I'm not working for the paycheck. I'm passionate about it. Great. I, I, hope, I hope you are. But here's the thing. Does it feel like that every day? Some of you guys are like, I wish it felt like that some days. Uh, but I think for all of us, there are days that you're going to be like, yeah, I don't feel like going into work today. But you, you go, you're working for the paycheck. You got bills to pay. You need that. But here's the thing. How good is that commitment going to be? Because people change jobs a lot, and pretty soon you're going to find out, oh, I could get a better paycheck somewhere else. Or your company is going to be, you know, we could be giving somebody else a smaller paycheck to do your job. And that relationship might not work out. And so compare that contract with a company with a pledge to a person. And if you're in this room tonight, you've made that pledge, at least a pledge to a person. Think about your wedding vows. 
And if you understand that rightly and biblically, that's a lot different from a contract with your work. Saying, hey, well, this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm going to get. Let's sign here. I certainly hope that's not how we're thinking about marriage. It should be understood. It's a total commitment for better or worse, for richer or poorer. I'm not working for a paycheck. I am loving a person. And ultimately, you make that commitment because you value that person. You think, man, there's something about this person that has drawn you to this person saying, I'm going to give my life to this person. And that's really what it's like as a Christian. I see there's no one as valuable as Jesus is. Therefore, I am pledging, I am giving my life to him, to Jesus Christ. And let's be clear about this commitment that we're talking about, this total kind of marriage-like commitment that we make to Christ. First, Jesus demands it. Jesus demands this kind of commitment. Just look at what he says in Luke 14, 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I think Jesus is using a little hyperbole there. I didn't come to a marriage ministry tonight say, hate your wives, hate your kids, good night. No, that's, that's not what we're saying. But what he is making clear is, hey, I have to be clearly number one. He goes on in verse 27 today, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is commanding this kind of focused commitment. He's saying, I'm the center of the wheel. Everything's gonna revolve around me. It doesn't work any other way. He demands this kind of commitment. But here's the other thing. Jesus deserves this kind of commitment. I mean, the demands Jesus made, what I just read, that's intense. And it's statements like that throughout his ministry at times caused certain people to say, whoa, that's too much for me. I'm out. And they stopped following Jesus around. We read about one of those times in John 6 where people were listening to Jesus. They were like, whoa, can't handle that. Peace. I'm gone. And Jesus looks at his close disciples and says, are you guys going to leave too? And what Peter says is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus deserves this kind of commitment because there's nowhere else that you're going to find answers like you're going to find them in Christ. There's nowhere else that you're going to find satisfaction like you'll find it in Christ. There's nowhere else that you're going to find direction in life like you will find it in Christ. Jesus commands this, demands this kind of commitment. He deserves this kind of commitment. That the number one thing in your life should be your relationship with Christ. That you want to know him. That will lead you to, to be in the word, to spend time talking to him in prayer. That you will want to follow him and please him. That that would lead you to obedience. That you would want to serve him. That that would lead you to have a commitment to the church. All because not just I made some contract with some religious group and now I got to do all these things. But no, I love this person, Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord. And I am committed to him. Everything begins right there with that commitment. He is the cornerstone. And that's the goal that Paul is pushing everybody towards. That sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But then look at verse 4 there in 2 Corinthians. It says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That's a concerning statement from him. 
He's saying people are coming in and teaching different things and you're just putting up with it. You're accepting it. That is a problem. And that's another thing that we need to take care of, that we listen to what is true and what is right. Point number two, you need to build on the biblical gospel. Build on the biblical gospel. We live in a very confusing age. Where did everything that is here come from? Now, a lot of confusion. Where are we going? Am I a boy or a girl? Even it's become a confusing question. What's real and what's fake news? A lot of things in life are confusing. But what's worse than any of those things is that when we ask the question, what is the gospel? How does someone get saved? How does somebody get eternal life? What's really sad is all the confusion out there about the answers to those questions. And not just out there in the culture, it's that how many churches you can go to and find different answers to that question or just answers that aren't very clear at all to the things in life that are most important. Like, what is the gospel? I think 1 Corinthians 15 sums it up very well. When Paul talks about this gospel that I delivered to you, I preached to you, and he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel boils down to something that Jesus has done, that Christ died for our sins. And even that phrase, for our sins, starts to bring in some important background to the gospel that all of us in this room were at least at one point in our lives on a collision course with the justice of a holy creator God. That we had broken his law. Not like, uh, you got a speeding ticket, you're going to get in trouble now. But that, that we had basically committed treason, rebelled against God, saying, we don't really need you, we don't really need to follow you, that we're, we're fine on our own. We had rebelled and we were on a collision course with his justice with judgment, but Christ died for that. That Christ on the cross took the punishment that we all deserve for our sin, but he was also raised from the dead as God's stamp of approval on what Jesus did on the cross and also a sign that Jesus can give you new and eternal life. That you don't have to be trapped in that same pattern of sin anymore. That he can change you, that he can give you hope, that he can give you real peace, he can give you real joy. Uh, that's what Jesus can do, the one who died for your sins and rose again and give you life that's not even just wrapped up in this life, but life that will last even beyond the day that you die. That is the gospel, the good news. Jesus died for your sins and rose again so you could have new life. Fortunately, the confusion doesn't end there. When it's, okay, Jesus did all that, great. How, how do I sign up for that? How do I get that? There's a lot of confusion out there about that. I just pray this prayer or just do this thing or whatever it might be. Or when we look at the Bible, there's two words that dominate the discussion on what it means to, to be born again. And those words are repentance and faith. We don't have time tonight, but we could look all throughout the New Testament and see time and time again where, where those words are, are used telling people how to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Repentance simply means to turn. I'm going to turn from my sin, from living life my way, and faith means to trust. Instead of living life my way, I'm going to trust in Jesus. He's the Savior that I need. He's also the leader and the Lord that I need. And I'm going to follow him. Repentance and faith. 
So when we understand the real gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he rose again so that we could have new life, and we've turned from our sin and put our trust in him, that's the foundation to build on. And I would hope we could all enter into a new year with a clear understanding of what the gospel is, and that we'd be confident that we know it, and that we've trusted it, and that we've turned from our sin. And if you're here tonight because you're seeing some cracks in the ceiling, I would invite you just to check the foundation. Have you understood in your life, this is what the gospel is all about. Jesus Christ died for me so that I could be forgiven. He rose again so that I could have eternal life, so I could change. And I have turned from my sin. I've put my faith in him. Check the foundation. That's what we have to build on. But as we've looked at this passage so far, so far we've kind of been looking at one perspective where we're examining ourselves. Hey, I want my life to be Christ-focused. I want to make sure my life is building on the biblical gospel of what Jesus has done for me, and I've responded to that in repentance and faith. But I want us to look at this passage again one more time briefly and look at it from a different perspective, where we look at verse 2, where Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. And I want us, instead of just thinking about ourselves and our relationship with Christ, do we share that divine jealousy for anybody else? Could we identify with what Paul says, where we think of other people, man, I have a divine jealousy for them to be connected to Christ. And so that's point number three, build with this divine jealousy. And there was no synonym I could really come up with. I mean, jealousy is a pretty strong word. And there was no other word I could kind of put in there where I felt like without weakening what is trying to say here. And you might be, I should be jealous about other people? That doesn't sound right. Well, think about two things. Number one, God isn't afraid to call himself jealous. The second commandment, where he's saying, don't make any idols because the Lord, your God, is a jealous God. Later in Exodus, it says the Lord whose name is jealous. So God isn't afraid to be called jealous. Maybe that can help us get over it. But think about maybe there's some situations in life that jealousy isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, I have a little daughter. We got dads of, of daughters in the room. At least I'm sure we got some dads with little girls out there. And when I think about, there's the connection here with what Paul is saying. I, I betrothed you to Christ. It's like he's thinking of them like a, a spiritual daughter getting ready for a wedding. And that gets me thinking in my own life about the future. Thinking about my daughter, Hannah, and who is she going to marry someday? And I imagine a scenario where Hannah goes off to, to school and after a while, she starts telling me about this guy that she's met at school. And eventually, it seems like the relationship's getting serious. They, they both come, and the guy comes to visit and spend time uh, with me to get to know this Hannah Blakey's parents. And I'm spending time with this guy, and this guy is awesome. I mean, he just clearly loves the Lord. He knows God's word. He's all about serving his church. And I'm like, this is great. So he's got all the important things. And then even the little things, it's like, he likes watching golf, all of it. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I'm like, I couldn't have handpicked somebody better. And then at some point while he's there, he pulls me aside and says, hey, Mr. Blakey, I, I'd like to marry your daughter. Okay, would I have your blessing? And he asked me that. I'm going to be like, absolutely. And then give it some time to go back to school I see all the pictures on Facebook. They call it, they're engaged. And I'm like, yes. But then summer break comes and Hannah comes home. And the boyfriend, now fiance, goes off to somewhere else. And over the summer, I start seeing Hannah hang out with this ex-boyfriend that she used to have. 
from high school, who his life since high school has not exactly gone in a great direction. And she starts dressing differently. She starts talking to this guy on the phone, starts hanging out with this guy, starts talking less to the fiance. Don't you think as a father, I'm going to feel something about that? Don't you think we could call that something a little bit of divine jealousy? Can I get an amen from the dads of daughters in the room? Wouldn't you feel that way? No, that's a justifiable, that is a good thing. And there's a certain passion that we should have for other people to see them pursue Christ, to see their lives focused on Christ. And what would that passion look like practically? It's pretty simple. Well, there's two kinds of people in the world, the people that are following Christ and the people that aren't. So this passion for the people that aren't following Christ is going to look like evangelism, that we care about the people we know that are lost. And we want them to know this Jesus, the one who demands their attention, but also deserves it. We want to lead them to the one that can change their lives, bring them forgiveness, let them know true peace, true joy, the one that can give them eternal life. And we have a jealousy for them. And I would hope you don't just think, all right, Thursday night I can come into my little holy huddle. That's great that we get some great fellowship here. But we need to be going out thinking, who are the people that need to be joining us at church? Who are the people that need to be giving their lives to Christ? We should have this sense of jealousy for other people. But then for those that do know Christ, it's not going to look like evangelism, obviously. It's going to look like encouragement. And even as we get ready for a new year, I'd like you to think about your small group. Do you have this kind of passionate concern for them that, man, I want to do whatever I can do to help these people, to, to be uh, just a lift to these people, to help these people draw closer to Christ? That would look like so many practical things like, man, I'm praying for them. That I, I, I don't care if I'm not the small group leader. I, I don't care if I'm not the mentor couple. I don't care if I'm not kind of the prayer rep in the group. I'm going to be praying for everybody in my group on a regular basis because I care about them, because I want to see them having this solid foundation. I'm going to be listening to them when they talk, when they talk about the things that they're concerned about. Man, I'm going to be listening and taking note of that because I have a genuine concern for them in my heart. I'm going to reach out to them through text, or I'm going to write them a card to let them know how much I care about them and how I'm praying for them. I'm going to help them when I hear that they're going through a tough time or something's come up and they need help moving or they could use a meal or whatever it be. I'm going to jump in to do whatever I can do to help other people because I have this divine jealousy that I believe that Jesus is really worth it and I want everybody else to see that. It should lead us to a year where we at Thrive are all about evangelism and we are all about encouragement like we never have been before. Now, evangelism, sharing your faith, and encouraging other people, those are somewhat simple concepts. And neither of those are that complicated. Well, the question is then, why don't we do that more often? Well, why aren't we serious about sharing our faith? Why aren't we going for it to encourage our small group? And it made me think about this, that have you guys seen how social media has really changed the way you find new restaurants? Uh, it's not like it used to be in the old days. Now you just go on Facebook, you go on Instagram, and, and you see something that somebody else posts that's really exciting. I remember one time I went on Instagram and I saw this uh, little video or boomerang, whatever the trendy thing is, that I think my brother-in-law posted, and it was of a cheeseburger, except the two patties were like, or the two buns uh, were like fried patties of macaroni and cheese. 
So it was like a, a beef cheeseburger. I think there was bacon in there and then two macaroni and cheese patties. And I saw this and I thought to myself, I must have this. My life will not be complete until I have tried this. And so I messaged and said, where can I get this? And as soon as possible, I drove up to the new trade food hall in Irvine and I tried this burger. And you've probably had experiences uh, like that where you've seen somebody post something, you're like, ooh, I want to go and I want to try that. Or you've seen this kind of change in how we find things. But as you see people posting about all the exciting things that they're eating on social media, I don't really see a lot of people posting about McDonald's. I don't see a lot of people posting about Jack in the Box. Or even maybe a step up, uh, don't really people, a lot of Instagram boomerangs about Panera Bread. Uh, or even places like Chipotle, unless they're doing something exciting like offering queso now. Uh, but, but even places like that, they don't make as much of a splash. Why not? Well, because they're ordinary. They're nothing special. They're regular. They're common. Why don't we have a greater jealousy for Christ? Why aren't we more eager to evangelize others? Why aren't we more eager to encourage people that are around us? The sad truth is, despite what we might say if we were given a test, or despite what we might sing, really, when it comes down to how do we view Christ, we view him as ordinary, as nothing special, as something regular, something common, something I've grown up with, something you know, that, that I think is important, because you know I'm a conservative Orange County evangelical. You know, so this church thing, yeah, I, I got to do it. And Jesus, he's, he's cool. Unfortunately, that's really what we show with our lives, what we think about Jesus. And that's what we end up really communicating to the people around us. Instead of communicating this idea of you must have this, your life will not be complete until you have followed Christ. And that it will never be complete without him. Even as we start a new year and we think about the Great Commission that Jesus gave, go and make disciples, which we talk about a lot here at Compass Bible Church with the words reaching, teaching, and training. We want to reach new people for Christ. We want to teach people to follow Christ. We want to train people to serve Christ. That's a pretty famous passage. Maybe your kids are learning about it and want to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Do we remember the verse right before that? What does Jesus say before he says, go and make disciples? He starts off with, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why do we go? Why do we make disciples? Why do we invest in other people at church? Because of who Jesus is. Because he is the Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. There's no one else worthy of our praise. And there's no one else worthy to be the cornerstone of our lives the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our families, the foundation of our marriages. He alone is worthy. Let's go ahead and pray together. God, we come before you and we, we praise the name of Jesus and we stand in awe of who he is. And we confess there is no one like him. And God, I pray that as we think about him this year, God, that our, our view of him would be elevated, that we would never get caught in the trap, especially just through familiarity of, of attending a solid church or growing up in the faith, that we would never think of Jesus as something ordinary or common or uh, nothing special, but that we would see him for who he is, the Holy One of God, the Savior of the world, 
the only one who has defeated and conquered sin and death, the only hope that we have for eternal and true life. And may we see him for that. May that affect the way that we live. May it rivet our attention and focus on him as we live our lives. And may it motivate us to have a divine concern for, for others, whether they be out of the church and, and not saved. God, to reach out to them with the gospel. Or just as we look around our small groups, God, that we would have a vested interest in encouraging all of us to continue to focus on Christ and to grow in our walk with him. God, may this be the best year yet of Thrive. And may you do great things in our lives and God, even in the lives of people that we haven't met yet as they come to faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody. We will see you back here next week. If there's a few of you guys that could help start stacking chairs and maybe moving some tables, that would be great. But for the rest of you, don't forget your kids. Have a great night. Oh, also, if you're new, remember, drop off the form over at the table so that we can get you connected with the right small group for next week. Have a great night.